one thing that my grandma, my mom, they all taught me, you're a black man. You have to be humble in anything you do. If you get out of control, you get put out this world as a black man. That's what I've been taught from a little boy all the way till now. The Village Square, a nervy bunch of liberals and conservatives who believe that disagreement and dialogue make for a good conversation, a good country, and a good time. At the Village Square, we believe big things can happen when ideas collide inside the bonds of mutual respect. We're building the town hall of the 21st century across the partisan divide. At the Village Square, we talk about politics, religion, and race. You know, the topics your mom taught you never to discuss in polite company. When most separate, we gather across color, creed, and ideology. Listen, at the Village Square, we make pigs fly. Welcome to Village Squarecast. This is your host, Vanessa Rouse. Thank you for joining us for this God Squad episode where we honor Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s legacy by reflecting on his letter from Birmingham Jail, one of the most iconic and impactful writings in American history. This program is a little different than our normal God Squad programs because it includes a contest component giving youth the opportunity to reflect on Dr. King's letter. During the program, we share essay and video submissions from these youth, and we have our normal God Squad style discussion with a panel of faith leaders. So here's how this program is structured. In the very beginning, we share two of the youth presentations. Then we have the God Squad discussion. And then at the end, we share some more of the youth presentations. Audience members who attended during the Facebook Live and Zoom event had the opportunity to vote on their favorite submission. So here's a little hint. That's an advantage of attending our live events. You can hear all about our upcoming events by signing up for our newsletter at tlh.villagesquare.us. But for all our podcast listeners out there, an advantage of listening here on Village Squarecast is that the voting has concluded, so you get to find out who won. At the end of the program, I'll give you the scoop. As I mentioned, some of these were video submissions and some were spoken essays, but even the video ones are incredibly powerful with just the audio, so we've left those in here for you to hear. If you want the full effect with the visual, you can check those out on our website at tlh.villagesquare.us slash squarecast, look for episode 25, or you can watch the playback of the whole event on our Facebook page. Unfortunately, there was one submission we cut from the podcast because the audio just didn't come through. It was from a remarkable young man named Antoine Harris, and we left in the introduction about Antoine so you can still learn a little bit about him and his story. This is a really excellent program, you guys. I loved it all the way through, and one of my absolute favorite parts comes at the very end, so here's my quick spoiler on that. I was listening to one of these essays being read by a grown man on behalf of the youth author. It was incredibly profound and thought-provoking. And then comes this part. I am only 14, but I can see the need for justice for all, and I will work to make it so. Take it from me, you guys. 
You do want to stick around to hear 14-year-old Samuel Lawson's essay and the rest of these incredible youth leaders. Okay, time to get on with the program. Liz Joyner and Dr. Keith Parker join us at the beginning and the end to introduce the youth presentations. And then they turn it over to Pastor Betsy Olette Zierden to facilitate the God Squad discussion and introduce our other guests. So here's Liz Joyner. Hello, everyone. My name is Liz Joyner. I'm founder and CEO of The Village Square. And we're delighted to welcome you to God Squads honoring Dr. King's legacy, a letter from Birmingham jail on the day that is the 92nd anniversary of his birth. And I'd also like to introduce my sidekick here, Dr. Keith Parker. Dr. Parker is a uh, sociology professor at Florida A&M University and a member of the Village Square Board of Directors. Welcome, Dr. Parker. Thank you. And I, too, want to extend welcomes to uh, each of you panelists, the audience, and our partners. This is a very momentous occasion, and I do not take it lightly, as is the case with Liz, Village Square, and specifically those of us who are participating today. We have a unique opportunity to hear the voices of the young, the young at heart, as we reflect on the life, the legacy of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. We extended an invitation to young people several months ago to take up the challenge of reading and reacting to this wonderful letter Dr. King compiled while sitting in jail in Birmingham, Alabama, many, many years ago. As part of the assignment students were, were given, uh, we also indicated that there would be some sort of um, a reward for best reactions to the letter. So our, our stakeholders, and you will learn more about them shortly, came up with a, an award prize. First place, $500. Second place, $400, third place, $350, Liz. So I want to say thanks to the organizations that worked on getting this special program together. FAMU Cooperative Extension Program, Save One Life Foundation, Black History Month Festival, 100 Black Men of Tallahassee, and Legacy Taste of the Garden. None of our programming would be possible through the pandemic also without us thanking Knight Foundation, Community Foundation of North Florida. So, Keith. Uh, you get to tell us about the first presentation. Yes, thank you. It is indeed an honor for me to uh, uh, share with you all a very inspiring presentation. Caleb Stevenson is a, a student at the Havana Magnet Preparatory School. Caleb Johnson uh, is a student at Cobb Middle School. Their submission is entitled, Women Are King. Following their presentation, we will have a presentation by the IIC Warrenville. Uh, the title of their presentation is The Voice of Incarcerated Youth. We will hear three voices. Uh, voice number one will be that of Malcolm Turner. Voice number two will be that of Malika Anthony. And voice number three will be that of Diego Garcia Cardora. 
So at this time, Liz, I do believe we are ready for the show to officially get on the way. Kalia, have you read the letter Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. wrote from his Birmingham jail cell in 1964? Yes, a nonviolent protest led by Dr. King resulted in him being arrested and thrown into Birmingham jail. And while in jail, Dr. King addressed a letter to eight white Alabama clergymen who thought his actions were wrong. But did you know Dr. King wrote his letter almost 57 years ago to those eight white clergymen? He responded to their statement that his nonviolent resistance to discrimination was unwise and untimely. Dr. King told them he was in Birmingham because injustice was in Birmingham. Now we're in the 21st century and we're still experiencing those same injustices. Police killings, unequal pay, and underfunded schools. It seems not much has changed. There have been various ways we've tried to address the inequality and social injustices using protests, court battles, and the passage of legislation. But still, wrongful deaths and injuries occur to people of color often. I still have hope. If I was to write a letter today, it would be to the three Black women who started Black Lives Matter in 2013 and thank them for reigniting Dr. King's vision for peace and equality. Malcolm X once said, the most neglected person in America is the Black woman who created Black Lives Matter are ensuring Black voices are heard. Thank you, Alicia, Opal, and Patrice, and to the women who raised me. Black women are our racist backbone. As a young Black woman, had I been in Dr. King's place, I'd write to the women of our churches and community. Black women back then were viewed more as supporters and helpers rather than as the leaders of the movement. But Black women were leaders right here in our own town, Willema Jakes and Carrie Patterson, two Florida A&M University students, refused to give up their seats on the Tallahassee City bus in May 1956. And don't forget sisters Patricia and Priscilla Stevens, also Florida A&M students, who led Tallahassee's launch counter boycotts in February 1960. You see, Caleb, Black women are leaders in the fight against injustice, and the actions of one person can create a better world for many. Using our talents and willpower, we can and will fight for and achieve equality in a nation Black people help build. And the second video was the IYC Warrenville group. Martin Luther King Jr. letter from Birmingham jail is a powerful message to the religious leaders of the church and response to their criticism of his non-violence protests in Birmingham. It is said that so many years later, we are still struggling with the same issue of racial and economic injustice, so much so that King prophecy with non-violent protests turned violent out of frustration and despair have come true. As we can see by the recent nationwide protests and race wars. Just like in the past, the police treated nonviolent protesters poorly. For example, in a nonviolent protest in Atlanta, a police officer wouldn't stop tasing a young female even as she begged him to stop. So much power has been given to the police and they are praised, but as King said, sometimes the law is just on his face and unjust in its application. While it is true that it appears that there has been progress in the old ways of racial and economic injustice, there have been new ways to continue this injustice, which is evident in how segregated our communities are and our prison system. So many people who speak up 
for what they believe in or oppressed and punished. And so many people feel scared of their feelings of non-conformalists that they don't speak up and do what they know has to be done. There is nothing wrong with not falling in line where there is injustice. In fact, it is wrong to do so. But we should not use immoral tactics to get moral outcomes. We should not be fighting each other. We should be coming together and gaining support nationwide because it is, that is the only way there will ever be change if we have to, even if we have to go city by city. We need to stand up for what we believe in and be consistent. Martin Luther King Jr.'s message that his nonviolent protests are not only not wrong and untimely, but necessary. It's just as true today as it was then. King's letter is very empowering to people in jail because the voices of incarcerated individuals rarely get heard. Us being locked up, we don't, our voices never like being heard because we're incarcerated, so. A lot of people are trying to have our voices and stuff like that. Cold war. I'm a colder soldier, hold the same fight that made Martin Luther the king. I ain't using it for the right thing. In between lean and the fiends, I select the schemes. I put together pieces of a dream. I still have one. I got a dream. We're going to work it out. So it is now my pleasure to introduce um, a very special guest today who I've had the pleasure to get to know over many months of planning this program. Dr. Tasha Davis. Dr. Davis is the CEO and president of Save One Life Foundation in Chicago, Illinois. And it's it's really been a pleasure. Dr. Tasha, tell us about Save One Life Foundation and any anything you want to say about the video. Uh, hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Tasha Davis. I'm the founder of the organization called Save One Life Foundation. Save One Life Foundation started inside of Illinois Youth Center, and we work with incarcerated youth as well as helping them on their way home. So we work with reentry youth and youth in the community, and we help them through education opportunities as well as workforce development opportunities. So the group that presented was IYC Warrenville. These are a group of young scholars who have been awarded scholarships through Save One Life Foundation. And what they did was shared you all uh, the voice of incarcerated youth to let you know that when MLK wrote his letter, he was speaking from an adult adult voice. Today, you're able to hear that same plight in 2021 coming from the voice of our young people. And what I will say about that group of young people that presented, they are inside of jail still pursuing higher education. So each one of them are right now in college. Uh, Malcolm is going to be studying to be an electrician at Rock Valley College. Malika is studying psychology at the College of DePage. And Diego is studying business at uh, College of DePage as well. So it goes to show you that even though they're in their struggle, they're still finding ways to meet. And if they can do it, our society should be able to assist in doing it as well. So thank you, Liz, Dr. Parker, for having us today. Thank you, Dr. Davis. Dr. Parker, your introduction. Yes, and Dr. Davis, please allow me to take a second of privilege here to say that the, these young people you are working with are walking in the shadow on the shoulders of Dr. King because, as we all know, when he crafted this letter, he was behind bars. So uh, th there are some lessons while we may be incarcerated physically, our minds are free to develop, to grow, and to do great things. And certainly, if I had to take 
a lesson from the presentation by these three individuals and relate to anything, Dr. King, it would be that our minds are free. You may incarcerate me, but my mind is free. And so uh, I just wanted to say thank you for the work you are doing with these young people. Thank you. At this time, I would like to introduce to Darius, who is an 11th grader at the uh, St. John's uh, Second Catholic High School. And he is being sponsored by the 100 Black Men of Tallahassee. Welcome to Darius. And to Darius, you're, you're at JP2, right? Yes, ma'am, I am. Excellent. It's a pleasure to have you here with us today. Yes, ma'am. It's a pleasure for you to have and we'll get, we'll get to hear your essay at, at the end of the conversation. And now it is my pleasure for God Squad regulars. You've been um, wondering where God Squad is. Well, they are here, I promise. So it is now my pleasure to introduce the one and only Betsy Wheelett Zierden. And Keith and I are going to hand the baton over to you, Betsy, and take it from there. All right. Well, this is a special, a special day. And um, I think you'll be impressed with the essays to Darius. I really, I really learned a lot from your essay and the other presentations as well, Dr. Davis from, from your students and uh, as well. Thank you. But first, before we get into the conversation, we need a few more conversation partners. So I'd like to introduce Reverend Trinity Whitley, who is the associate at Faith Presbyterian. Trinity, are you here with us? Yes, I am. Thanks, Betsy. I'm honored to be here and be a part of the God Squad conversation today. Oh, I'm glad you're here. And then we also have Pastor Joseph Davis. We call him Pastor Joe of Truth Gatherers Community Church. And some of you regulars that watch God Squad know that Pastor Joe is, has joined us several times now and is probably considered a regular now. That's good news. That's good news. Right. So we're we're going to have some conversations that, about the presentations we saw and just some reflections on Martin Luther King's letter from the Birmingham jail. Let me share with you that I was born in Birmingham in 1960. And when I was sharing with my father that we were planning this program, he goes, you know, I've actually been in the Birmingham jail. I had to go and get somebody released once because they would not allow his African-American mother to, to get, him, get him out of jail. And he was arrested for something very minor like vagrancy or something. So the injustice certainly does go way back. What I noticed in the presentations, though, there was a little bit of hope and a little bit of, of concern. Specifically, Kalila, she said that, um, you know, not a whole lot has changed. It seems not much has changed. And then Caleb said, but he has hope. And he named the three Black women that started Black Lives Matter. And so I see that kind of this concern that there's not been change and hopes resides right next to each other. I'll tell you that Trinity and I have had the experience of being around people that look a lot like us that have naively believed that significant progress has been made. So I want to ask specifically Dr. Davis and Pastor Joe to begin the conversation. How do you hang on to hope and where do you see progress in, in addressing injustice right now? For me, my hope comes from the voice of the young people, to see them as our next generation, our current generation that's going to, to lead us out of this. They're going to have to take roles of leaders. 
So what I try to do now is instill leadership in them, skills to help them help each other as well as help us. So I think that's where a lot of my hope comes from. Go ahead, Joe. I'll say my hope also comes from facts. Um, At the time the Birmingham letter was drafted and written, at that time, we had very little representation of people of color inside uh, judicial systems, court systems, and into major places in our government. So number one, we can factually see progress. And then uh, we also are able to see it from the respect and the highlight of women and their role in civil rights and what they're doing to make great progress. And so that gives me hope that this letter written at such a time that it was needed is still continuing in the hearts of our community. And we're seeing people grab onto it and use it to further legacy. Wonderful. To Darius, I want to know a little bit more about your Uncle Charles. Those that haven't read your essay yet will learn that he was a great influence on you. Tell us about Uncle Charles and what he contributed to your understanding of the civil rights movement and where we're at today. Well, when I first started to meet with my Uncle Charles, we usually just generally like talked about the civil rights movement and like during his time, like he was around like my age and then getting older and older. So then I started getting interested in it. And he has like the moral of when I ask him about stuff, research it. Like research what you want to look up, like research about my time and you'll see. So looking into the civil rights movement, I learned a lot. So like as far as Martin Luther King and stuff like that, like he taught me stuff that they generally wouldn't teach me in school. Right. Interesting. So it's a lot of interesting stuff that he showed me. So he was him and my grandmother were really my influence for this as well. Well, I was impressed that he told you that you needed to read the letter three times because it's a big, long letter. Did you do that? Did you read it three times? Yes, I had to. Because he he had he was like, if you don't read it three times, I got something for you. So I was like, I had to read it three times. Well, we pastors sometimes uh, say the same to our congregation when we're starting a new series on a, on a gospel. So I don't know that we say read it three times, but certainly read it all the way through. <laughs> so Darius, in your essay, you quoted Martin Luther King several times. But one of the quotes that I want to pull out now is, everywhere there's a threat to justice, it affects everyone. Everywhere there's a threat to justice. What affects one directly affects all indirectly. And Trinity, um, Reverend Whitley, I'm going to address this to you. What do you think that means? You have a toddler, you have a baby on the way. You know, we're of the privileged class. What does that mean to you? Yeah, definitely. That jumped out to me in Tadarius's essay because I think he's right, you know, and in particular, the language of directly, what affects one directly affects everyone indirectly. I am indirectly affected by it, but that's the key word indirectly. And later on, Tadarius, in your essay, you brought up that uh, women of color don't have a choice about having a conversation with their black sons. But as a white woman, I do have a choice. It's an indirect effect. And so as I began to think about, you know, how, how am I indirectly affected and what choice do I make to respond to that? I couldn't help but think about my, my two-year-old son. And then I have another son on the way who's due in May. And what the world would be like for them 
if because I'm indirectly affected, I said or did nothing and how the richness of our society would be lost and how the opportunities for growth and learning would not be there. And I really began to think about it as a person of faith too, because my faith very much teaches me that we are all created in God's image. And so if I allow this injustice to continue, then there are little pieces of God's image that are being taken from our earth. And my children don't get to experience that. So yeah, I'm indirectly affected by it. And I have the choice to be silent about it. Or I have a chance to help my sons understand differently. I have a chance to allow them to see their heroes as people like Tadarius. You know, they can come and they can watch him play football. And then they can say, oh, I want to be a football player like Tadarius. They can, we have uh, my two-year-olds, one of his favorites books right now is I Look Up to Michelle Obama. And he loves it because I look up to Michelle Obama because Michelle is strong. And every time we get to that page, he loves to show his strong muscles. And so there's a chance for him to have an opportunity to see this diverse and beautiful world and to see those peoples as his, as his hero instead of seeing them as the people who are being crushed by injustice. And I want him to see those folks as his hero instead of seeing himself in the perpetrators of that violence. And so, you know, I think uh, Tiberius's letter definitely challenged me because I'm, I'm questioning, you know, am I just going to let it be an indirect effect right. or am I going to be a part of trying to seek that justice, right? Where the problems of people who are being attacked are now my problems too. Absolutely. Well, another point that one of the essays made, I think it was yours, was something that I hadn't really thought about. You referenced that Dr. King and the Black Lives Matter movement both stand between a force of contentment, referencing educated middle-class African-Americans, and a force of bitterness and hatred, those that have feel left out and without any path forward in the black community and that there's tension between those two and that Dr. King experienced that tension and the black lives matters uh, movement also, also experiences that tension. So I'd like Dr. Davis and pastor Joe, tell us more about the tension. Do you, do you agree with that observation? How do we get everybody in, engaged instead of these kind of bookends with people in the middle being the ones that are, are, are marching and, and taking action? Well, one, we have to first stop looking at Black people in one category just by their race. There is a vast, wide, diverse range of Black people. We have clergy that are Black. We have scholars. Uh, We have people that are suffering that are Black. So when you see a movement, and it's called a Black Lives Matter movement, it's not just a racially motivated movement. Some people are crying out for their education of their kids. Some people are crying out for the killings that police officers do on our young men and women in our communities and getting away with it. Some are crying out on black on black crime, as you'll hear later today from the Chicago young authors escaping the odds. They talk about that heavily. So I think what we like Trinity just mentioned when she's talking about her son's and how she should explain this to them directly or indirectly. She looked at it from a perspective of looking at Blacks 
in a heroic manner. But then my perspective would be, how can I get my young people to look at themselves in that manner, that worth for themselves, because it all starts at home. And so I don't know if I'm answering your question in terms of the population of people that are suffering from all of these injustices, but there's not one pot. It's just a systematic oppression that has been going on for over 400 years. And it's been convoluted by so much that it can't be labeled one thing. We have to address multiple things. And I think starting with clergy would be a great place because clergy should not have a color. We should all be able to come and be and stick to the word of the most high and talk about issues that he want us to live under versus what society has bridged for us. Pastor Joe, do you have anything to say there about? Well, wonderful. Yeah, I was listening to Dr. Davis and being inspired as a clergy as well. I think when you look at this from a global point of view and trying to get everyone into the fight, we have to, number one, stay consistent, right? So stay consistent. Those who are on the on the pavement and everyone's role, just stay consistent at your, your area of, of gifting for this uh, fight we must uh, go through. Because again, there's clutter. Some people don't understand the message. Dr. Davis was speaking to it. People get confused when you see the Black Lives Matter movement, what it all signifies. Then of course you got clutter. You got this diagnosis of, of objectives. And so I think it's important for the, those of us who know what it's all about to speak up boldly and clearly. That's the only way to clear the clutter and to fight the noise. And so for me, I think that's how you kind of ruin, narrow this gap and bring more people in. You just got to keep staying on the pavement and speaking this truth. And again, I love the fact that it should start with clergy as well. We can't overlook the fact that MLK Martin Luther King was clergy. Um, he was an ordained minister. And, um, and so I believe he even approached this from a Christian point of view. Even the whole Birmingham letter, um, arrested on Good Friday, all the connotation of what happened around this Birmingham letter even says there is a message of hope that we still must bring even while we're dealing with the evils of our day. Yeah, well, the thing about the clergy letter, addressing it to clergy, is he does make the point that he believed that these particular clergymen were uh, people of goodwill. But then later in his letter, he talks about how he thinks maybe the moderate, the moderate white person or the moderate white clergy may be more trouble, may, may cause more trouble than the overt racist that are out there. <laughs> I thought that was something that I think a village square even touched on once. I'm not sure how to address any of that, but any ideas would be helpful. Well, I would like to address the fact that we all play a part. And if everybody can just accept what part it is that they play as citizens of this country, whether you are moderate, uh, whether you are, hate to say it, Confederate, but the bottom line is people have to, if you want change, it has to start from within. So there's been a lot of time that we've talked about the problem, the problem, the problem. I like solutions. Yeah. So if you can start with yourself, if you're someone like the young people who are incarcerated, you know. Uh, Malcolm and Malika and Cordero, they have made a change within themselves, regardless of what society is going to do for them, 
regardless of what their parents are going to do for them. They've made a decision that they won't come out into this world uneducated and lacking opportunities. That's what it takes. It takes people to start where they stand. And as clergy, if you failed, you know, I look at in just in the poor black community where I came from in Cabrini Green in Chicago on the west side of Chicago. The story we have of clergy is not of that very good. There just wasn't. It was due, it was a lot of ill treatment of in the community or turning a blind eye or doing something you shouldn't be doing. So as clergy, I think we can go back to the basics of the word and sharing the word. The word has no color. Take your opinion off of the word and share the word with our young people in order to get them back to the basics of there is someone higher than them. There is something bigger than us. I think we've gotten this humanistic characteristic in our lives and think we're in control of everything when actuality, none of us are in control of anything. And so I think that is one way we can get get started to solutions. Yeah. Yeah. And you, and you also make a good point that, you know, we are a community and we have placed too much emphasis on individual power, but together we're better. Um, I think that that's really important. You talked earlier, um, Pastor Joe, about the consistency of engagement. And I appreciate you, Dr. Davis, telling us, start where you are and do your part. This is this is uh, something that is hard for some people to believe or understand because they haven't had that experience, although it's been very much in our face over the last year and a half or so. Samuel, who's another essayist, he says that there's two worlds. In one world, he's told, study hard and be of good character, and you can achieve anything. But in his other world, there's terms like driving while black, shopping while black. Violence against black men in particular, but black bodies across the board, happens regardless of your education or your bank account or how upstanding you are in character. So I know that I was personally moved when I started hearing my friends' personal stories about being stopped because of their, their color. And I was wondering if Tadarius, Pastor Joe, and, and any of the three of you, can you give us an example of where the worlds collided? Your first world where things were going well collided into the second world where you were seen as a person of less worth because of your skin tone. I'm sorry. I just want to start. I'm Dr. Tasha Davis, right? I went to college. I did everything that I was supposed to do to upheld the American dream, right? They told me to do all of these things. I was a mother. I took care of my kids. I was never jailed. I did everything that you probably did. A lot of white women do. But when I got done, the world told me, no, you're not going to get this job that you worked hard for. And if you do, you're going to come in at the bottom and you're going to stay there and you're going to watch young people that are not your color come in with less than you and climb this ladder with no struggle. And so there I realized that I had been lied to and systematic oppression was way bigger than I. No matter how much I pursued the American dream and went the route I was supposed to go, I was not going to be given those same opportunities. I accept that today. But that is where it all hit me is when I knew I did what I was supposed to do to have the American dream. I reached for it and was told no, based off the color of my skin. So 
like when I was little, growing up, we always had to, me and my siblings, we always had to read books. We always had to look at our studies and do all this other stuff. And then when we get older, like as I got older into high school, when they used to tell me like your skin color, it affects like what you do and who you are. I didn't listen until when I was in 10th grade, I played sports. So I always used to get questioned, like usually they'll stereotype black young men as if like you play sports and you're an athlete, you need help with your grades and stuff. And I used to feel like really offended by that because there are some athletes that actually have the intelligence to make great grades. And it just really bothers me that they stereotype all athletes or black male athletes to be basically dumb. And I strongly dislike that. How did you address that when that was happening? Did you find your voice? What, what, how'd you address that? Well, I found my voice after that, but I like humbly did it instead of saying it out of anger. Good for you. Okay. And what about you, Pastor Joe? Anything to add? I, I begin to think about my upbringing. I, I grew up in a very diverse area. Of course, I was I grew up in a predominantly African-American neighborhood, but my, uh, my upbringing was in South Florida, so I had diverse friends. But as I kind of went to college and then got into the workforce, then I met that wall. I met it. I met it in conversation. I met it in last to know what's coming down the pipe. I met it in disrespect, meaning going over my head before I have the opportunity to address the matter because I'm in management, in state government. And so I've had to learn to just to be, I'll even say I felt like above the rest. And there are times I didn't feel I got the credit that I was deserved. Um, that, and I've just learned, learned to stick it in. And never, never stooped down to the low. But I'll be honest, I probably built up a little bit of uh, pressure that I actually don't allow environments like that. I don't allow a culture of racism, whether it's for me or anyone else. So I just took a lead. Um, I would actually address people who I thought was causing racism. And so I just took on a different place. Um, I just got guts and just said, hey, I did it diplomatically. I've learned to do it do it tactfully, but I just took on a different role of it. And I just said, if I'm going to be a a part of the difference, I got to speak up. I got to speak the language. I got to be educated. I got to know processes and rules. So I just begin to learn rules, processes, know where I was, know how to communicate. And then without even having an adversarial type attitude, but I just learned it and I, but I dealt with it. I, I know what it is to be overlooked. I know what it is to train somebody uh, and they not be half as good as I was. And so I've been there, done that, and I've learned a lot from it. And I, I try to use it as a learning experience um, that I'm nowhere near bitter um, about it. It made me better. And I use it to advocate. So I, I think I'm a, I try to be a workforce advocate for it and very strong that I'm not silent at all. I think that's important to find the courage to speak or stand for the things that matter. Did you want to add anything, Trinity? Yeah, I just, Betsy, uh, thanks. I want to reflect. I heard Tadarius say, I didn't do it out of anger. I did it humbly. And I heard Pastor Joe say, I wasn't adversarial, but I made sure, you know, I had learned my stuff and I confronted it. And I commend that. 
I, as a follower of Jesus Christ, think humility is good, but I also struggle with that as a white clergy person, because I think that part of it is the system that we have put into place, that that people of color have to make sure that they do it humbly, that they do it non-confrontationally. And I think also as a people of faith, when we see that happening, we have to support the confrontation. We have to be okay with that. You know, uh, we see we we see Jesus with righteous anger, and and we should be okay to uh, support and allow for a little bit of that. I like it. So I just I, I want to I, I keep thinking back to like after the the shooting at Emmanuel Baptist and how everybody celebrated that those families were so quickly to forgive, and I thought. I'm not sure as the Christian community, we allow for them to be angry. I think we have that expectation that they have to be gracious and humble and non-adversarial. And I just think as a people of faith, we kind of have to be able to live into that tension and to to seek up and support when we see our brothers and sisters of color getting angry because they should be angry. And justice does promote an angry response. We should all be angry about it. Now we need to be careful in how we love one another. And I'm not, you know, I don't want us to get to a point of violence and that's not what I'm saying, but I just think to press on the idea, you know, in particular for us to, I think we, I want to say as a person, a a white person and a clergy person, I, I am afraid that I have too long promoted that people of color just need to be humble and loving when they have a right to be angry. Absolutely. I appreciate that. I wanted to piggyback off of that and and thank you for that for that response. That's definitely a great feedback to give someone coming from a Caucasian race. But I also wanted to talk about when you mentioned your examples of heroes to your children, and you talked about Tadarius being an athlete and Michelle Obama being strong. My first reaction was why is it always something physical or we have to be like these astronomical athletes? I look at Tadarius as a scholar before an athlete. I look at his mind first before his physicality. When I think about Michelle Obama's strength, it's not from her arms and her muscles. It's from her mind and what she's done in support of her husband. So I think that's one place we can start is retraining our mind to look at the heart, not the body in the people that we're dealing with in in black people, period. As if you are someone that is white and you think every time we yell that we're angry and violent, we're human too. Just like when you yell and you get upset, we get upset too. I've often been required to take the position of understanding everyone else's plight, but putting my own to the side. And I think that's something that you all should realize that black people do every day, especially black women. Yeah, I know a clergy friend, a black clergy friend of mine was an associate at a white, large white church. And he said it was exhausting, exhausting. He never really got to be entirely himself. I have some questions from our congregation out there, our listeners, And I'm going to extrapolate a little bit on this question. He says, how does the panel read the letter in light of the Tallahassee police response to a peaceful protest here in September? I would just say, how does the panel respond to what we've just seen in the Capitol? How the Black Lives Matter peaceful protests were handled so differently 
than what we saw in the really the the violence that was taking place in our capital with no police presence. Do you have anything to comment on? I imagine it's no surprise to you. I do. That is when I seen that versus Black Lives Matter. Like once I seen these two types of riots, it was like it really made me angry because when Black Lives Matter happens and we're just doing peaceful protests, we're called apes, we're called guerrillas, we're called all of this, like race, like all of this, like anarchists, all the other stuff. But that, they call that a protest. Right. And that's really, like, that's really enraging to see stuff like that happen. But in today's society, that's what the Black person is. They stereotype us, and they make us seem like we're all bad. And that's a horrible thing in today's society. And it really enrages me. Yeah. And, and what about those of us that are, are Christians on the panel? Um, I know Dr. Davis and Pastor Joe are. I'm not sure about Tadarius. I don't know your background. But how did you feel when you saw the Jesus signs right up there next to the Trump signs, next to the violence, next to the anti-Semitism? <laughs> People are using God's name in vain and have been. I think when you start getting as divided as this country has become, you're trying to pull as many people to your side as possible. And so I think they have used Christianity as a call to join in on this this idea that they have, which I don't want to give any voice to. But when I saw that, what I'd like people to realize is after we witnessed it, how many people still made excuses for what is being done and how we have government officials sitting in on this. We are so divided as a country. We have to be able to come together some way. But my question is, how do you get people who have convinced themselves that that breaking into the Capitol, that losing lives, that uh, our president is insurrecting violence? How do we get them to believe other than that? How do you get them back this way? I don't see, for me, I don't have any suggestions for that, but I do see that people have made excuses for their wrongdoings and they're living with that and they're accepting it. That is something that I saw from that incitement of violence. Well, one of the things that I pulled out of Dr. King's letter was he said that groups are more immoral than individuals. I I only find hope right now in talking to individuals, uh, talking to people that are saying, oh, but what about, what about that? You know, they're, they're more, they're angry about a Copernic kneeling more, more so than they're mad about the desecration of the Capitol. So talking to people one-on-one, I think is, it's gotta be the hope. And we all know people, we all have people in our sphere of influence that are saying small things that seem perhaps not very dangerous, but they are dangerous because if, if you excuse the behavior that we saw with the Capitol, that's going to feel in my mind. One thing, the fact that there are not repercussions for actions. Yeah. As Black people, we have to penalize for everything we do and we have to go, whether we steal a candy bar, we're going to jail. We deal with our repercussions. And for some people think, incarcerating children is okay and they'll learn, but really that leads to man incarceration and part of this system. So I think it has to be some point 
where where people are able to deal with their hatred because there's a lot of hatred there with racism and there's a lot of trauma that is associated with it. You just put racism on his face. You're looking at people who suffered many years in whichever way, even if they are against blacks and, and, and what we're doing. Whoever taught them have maybe embedded that in them since they were young kids. They don't know any better. Most young people that I find that are racist, they learn that from their family members who taught them and heard abusive language in their home about a black person. It's not the experience they had with a black person that they got that from. Right. And so it starts within the home. It starts within how we raise and breed our children. And just like um, Trinity said, you know, this is the time when your baby's in your womb and you're, you have them one and two years old to teach them differently. And they'll have it in their heart when they get older to know the difference between when someone's bringing them something that is not just. That's right. And, you know, I, I want to piggyback on Dr. Tasha, because as she's talking about, it's not necessarily the experience they have, it's what they were taught. I don't know about you, Pastor Joe, but and in a lot of the congregations I see around and, and the congregations I grew up in, I was taught God bless America. I, I saw a Christian flag right beside an American flag. And so when I saw it in the Capitol and that insurgence, I could not help but think, oh, they've been programmed this from birth. This is what they were raised in their churches. And so I think as a clergy leader, I also have to think about how can I help reshape that narrative? You know, is are we singing God bless America? Or are we singing, this is my song, oh God of all the nations? Are we helping our, our congregation understand that yes, God loves us, but God doesn't love us because we are American. God loves us because God loves all people. And how do I help them begin to be bearers of that? I think that's really important that, that it starts in the home and it starts in our congregations. Yeah, I agree as well. I, th- I think that's true. But I have to say, I know lots of kids that grew up in homes where th- this hate was not preached. Racism was not acceptable. And yet this is in local high schools. And yet they're flying Confederate flags on the back of their pickup trucks in the high school parking lot. I, I, I got to believe that some of this is just coming from sort of a mob mentality and a desire to want to belong. And if you can't provide places to belong that are, that are healthy and that have purpose, they're going to find a purpose that is not good and, and jump on the wagon. Um, I have a lot of hope when I remember that Dr. King, during the civil rights movement, it was a smaller group of people than I ever dreamed. I naively thought that the majority was with him, which was not true. And so the hope there is that we don't need the majority. We need just lots and lots of good people standing together. I know, Pastor Joe, you want to say something else, and then I'll have a final question in a few minutes for all of our panelists. Um, Yeah, I, I was angry. I was very upset, very angry of the merger of the two. And... The truth of the matter is it's been underlying and present in American politics and American church churches for years. So although I saw the Jesus banners and although they had little camps or huts on site where they were singing songs and worshiping or whatever, there's always been this awful merger of bad belief system about people and their entitlement to have certain things because they're God's people. 
and breaking people from that biblical illiteracy <laughs> takes time and breaking people from that biblical, it's a biblical illiteracy. And so when I saw the fact that they was able to bring Jesus' name into that entire protest and also attribute Jesus' name to the president in a strong way, I think there are some serious things happening that has to be corrected. So I was very upset. I'm still, as an ambassador of, I believe, Christ's message, is still paving the pavement, preaching the gospel, even to my fellow brothers and sisters, that some of this has to be eradicated in message, in approach, and I'm trying to do my part in it. But I was angry. Right. I was was quite angry. Speaking of sharing with your colleagues, there's a question that I'm not sure I completely understand that one of our audience members sent. It says, how do we get Black clergy to teach and support what you're saying? Hmm. Is there is there an inference there that you're, we're not he- hearing uh, messages of, of justice from some of our pulpits? I know it's true in in some of the pulpits of of primarily. I think it was I think it was with Dr. Davis's about that it starts with them and that they have to believe in themselves. I think that's about the time the question came in when she was talking about getting her youth to believe that message that they could be heroes too. Okay, well, let me revisit something I said. To Darius, I mentioned racism, overt racism in our high schools. In particular, it was Child's High School that was in the news flying the Confederate flags. Have you experienced that in your school or how do you address address something like that with, with your classmates if it comes up? Well, I haven't per se experienced, but I know some people who have. So, like, I have friends that have experienced that type of stuff. And you asked what, what was my opinion. What would you say or do? Do you, do you address it right on? Do you let it go? How do you navigate the world right now? As a 17, are you 17? Are you 17? Yes, ma'am. As a 17-year-old with a bright future ahead, how do you navigate some of this stuff? One thing that my grandma, my mom, they all taught me, you're a black man. You have to be humble. and anything you do. If you get out of control, you get put out this world as a black man. That's what I've been taught from a little boy all the way till now. You can't get out of control. And I want to piggyback off of that. Black people are starting to believe that about black people. It's been taught. So it's been shown so much. For instance, absolutely. when you see a, a police officer kill just recently, a black man on his doorstep, He shouldn't have been walking towards him. He shouldn't have been. They're saying that the black man who got shot shouldn't walk towards the officer. Whereas if we flip that same situation, we have watched officers not feel that threat of white people with weapons. We're talking black men with no weapons getting killed. But you are not threatened when you see a white person doing the same thing. So when I say address how you address it. Me personally, I typically address it on his face right where it is. And where I think schools and high schools and middle schools have failed is when you have a parent bring a racist issue to you, like your kid being called the N word or a teacher mistreating you because of your color. The school needs to be no tolerant about it. I have watched schools excuse it, not do anything about it, accept it and breed it. 
And therefore, there will never be change if we all don't see it as a problem on its face. When it happens, it needs to be dealt with then. And I, I, I would hope, and I agree with Tadarius, he's, he wants to live. So right now, it's not about changing society. Right. Our young people want to live. Even when they're doing the right thing, they fear that they will not live past 21. And so they probably do the best they can to stay humble, to make sure they do the right thing. And, you know, the right thing changes per person. So today, what I do for this cop might not work for that cop. And that's a lot of weight to put on young people to learn how to navigate other people's problems with race. That's good. That's good. The letter, Dr. King's letter was written to clergy men because he believed that they were people of goodwill. And then he went to in the letter to point out a, a variety of ways that they were actually subverting goodwill. We have a listening audience that are all people of goodwill. And you have an opportunity to speak to them and say one last thing that um, you really have on your heart, each of you. Um, perhaps something I haven't brought up that needed to be brought up. So I'm going to just let you go, Trinity, you first, and just we'll just go down and speak to those folks out there. I see you. I see your faces. <laughs> I'm imagining you're out there. So I, I don't know that I have much more to add. I'm just so grateful for the opportunity to be in conversation. And I thank you for, you know, like the conversation with Dr. Davis. You're exactly right. Me focusing on strength and athleticism is a bias I didn't even realize I was uh, manifesting. And so the opportunities we have to be in these conversations and the way that that challenges me as a mom, as a white person, and as a clergy, um, I'm grateful that we can be a part of it. I appreciate that. For me, this is a call of action to our community, for our clergy, whether you're Black or white. If you are really into the word and making sure our young people get it, it's time to get down in the streets and reach these young people like you've never reached them before and teach them to be leaders in, of the word of, of God. I think that is the missing component to all of this. We are talking about racism, something that's been in, around for before any of us ever existed. And we're asked to solve this. You know what the solution is? God. Yeah. If everybody can go to the word of God and ask, what is my reaction? What should I do? The answer is right there for you. And so I'm not a clergy. I'm a woman of God. But I know in my community, there is no clergy. Clergy has turned into money, profits, how you can keep the church open. But it clergy has not gone out on the blocks of Chicago and walk with these young people to try to give them another way. And so if you're somebody out there that has educational opportunities and you're serious about giving young people that opportunity, reach back, give a scholarship. Look at the three young people who presented at the top who are in jail going to school. That is that is how you help bring some bridge some of this gap. Give them something to stop doing what they're doing wrong, feed into them on the positive things that they're doing. And I think the biggest thing that has failed in the black community is the passing of the torch. We haven't, our leaders, we have plenty in Congress that have not reached back and passed a torch. They die off and then we have generation without any leadership. My goal is to train Tadarius, Malcolm, Michaela, Antoine, Destiny, Cadero, how to be the next leaders to bring young leaders with them 
along this route so we don't have this big gap in generation of racism. And then in the clergy, you got to get your, your hands dirty. It's time to come out of your shell. We forgive you for what you did in the past. Today, we need you to get out of this. This only way out of this is through God's hands. Yep. Get out of your office occasionally. All right, Pastor Joe. What I would say is, again, especially to young people, those who are looking at what's happening today, I still always try to remind people that evil is still present with us, although we've made progress. And so sometimes when we see evil raise its head, it makes people feel or even make statements, we have made no progress. And so I always go back to anger that there has been major progress made in America in the way of policy, the way we treat people. But yet, in the midst of progress, evil is still with us. And so I'm encouraged to do my part as a clergy, but also I encourage those who are listening to make sure you also are passing the baton. I'm saying the same thing Dr. Davis was saying, but I think that's important. I've been impacted locally. I have some other impacts, but locally I've been impacted by Reverend R.B. Holmes um, has done a major job as it relates to civil rights, standing up, speaking out, and also making partnerships. And so I think those things are still uh, the continuation of this legacy, and it's happening. And our young people need to be a part of it, and they're taking it to the next level. And I'm enjoying how young people are taking a front lead in what's happening in our, in our society today. I think it's hopeful that you point out that, that there's progress along with lots of work to do. Yes. And to Darius, uh, you're going to be reading, I think, your essay in a few minutes. But off the page, what do you want to say to the people listening? This can be one of the building blocks for people my age and somewhat a little bit younger and also older to be leaders. Like piggybacking off of what Mr. Davis and Ms. Davis said. Most like kids around my age or in their teenage years, they don't they don't feel as if they don't have to be a leader. And talking about conversations like this, since it's not really talked about, it could be a big building block to people in their teenage years or in their 20s in their like wherever you are to be a leader and be something great for the black community and just all around in general. Awesome. Well, we'll have to have you back on one of our God squads in the future. I'm not sure if Liz is ready to come back on and move to the next part of our program, but I want to just say thank you so much. I've learned a lot. I appreciate Dr. Davis, how you spoke about how it made you feel when Reverend Whitley mentioned strength. And what I just saw between that, the two of you, it wasn't painful but it was inspiring and it was transformative. That's, that's, that's an example of what we need to do more of. I think the biggest part is she was receptive. And if we could just all open our hearts to receive, we will receive what we need to take that next step. So I felt comfortable. I felt she welcomed. And therefore we had an exchange of dialogue that was critical, um, maybe a little, painful to others to watch, but for, between us, it wasn't. And so there was some progress there. So thank you. There was. And now we're going to hear from, is Liz, we're going to hear from Tadarius now? We've got an audio clip of Tadarius's essay, and we're going to all hang out and listen to it together. My interpretation of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from Birmingham jail primarily was a reaction to the white clergy who believed Dr. King was a proponent of violence. 
At the time this letter was written, he found himself in jail because he was accused of being a radical outsider. Currently, they are demonstrating because of the killing of George Floyd and other innocent black people unjustly by the police, unwise and untimely. That is what the white preachers of Birmingham were saying to Dr. King about his protest. Dr. King had been invited to Birmingham by the black people who lived there because they were being victimized by unjust laws and unjust way. Good laws were distorted in an effort to use against them. Dr. King and black citizens who called upon him to come to Birmingham engaged in non nonviolent direct action by demonstrating just like all of the people who have been marching today because black lives matter. They demonstrated because injustice was there just as it is here now. My hope is that one day the nation, like Dr. King said of the South, will recognize its real heroes. When Colin Kaepernick kneeled before his San Francisco 49 football games to call attention to this issue, he was branded as unpatriotic and fired. He had the noble sense of purpose that enabled him to face jeering and hostile mobs and with the agonizing loneliness that characterizes the life of the pioneer. Until recently, I only looked at January 1st as bringing in a new year with hope and high expectations. In further research, I learned it is also a day to keep in mind the history that lead up to this day. As we approach the 158th anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation, I am saddened to report we have made minuscule progress and equality and justice for all. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Liz. Thanks for allowing uh, the God Squad to be a part of this special program. So I wanted to give my deepest thank you to all of you. I've been talking with lots of people during this conversation who have felt incredibly inspired by it. And to Darius, you should know that uh, Dr. Mobley and I, of uh, 100 Black Men of Tallahassee, we've been talking the whole time about how we, we're fans of yours. <laughs> So thank you all for being a part of this conversation. We're going to say goodbye to everyone, but Dr. Davis right now, Betsy's going to join us at the end. God Squad, thank you. We love you. Lucius, Lucius, we're so glad to, to have you with us today. Keith, you can introduce Lucius. Yes, uh, I, I'm delighted to present Lucius to us. He is being sponsored by the 100 Black Men of Tallahassee. Lucius uh, is going to share information with us uh, under the title, Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. Lucius, we anxiously anticipate your words of inspiration. All right, thank you. I'm glad. Good morning. Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. lived through a time where it was difficult for African-Americans to exist. He lived during segregation, which made it hard for African-Americans to get an education and a job. This is what persuaded Dr. King to stand up and make his famous speech, I Have a Dream. He's volume to every community and his impact us still to this day. While Dr. Martin Luther King traveled to get justice for the African-American, he was arrested and while he was in jail, he had nothing but time. In jail, he wrote a long letter about how everyone should be treated equally. In Dr. King's letter from the Birmingham jail, he was speaking to everyone, not just the white community and not just the black community, but to everyone. The world needed change and would only happen if everyone helped change it. And this letter he ended by saying, let us all hope in the dark clouds of racial prejudice will soon pass away and the deep fall of misunderstanding will be lifted from our fear-drenched communities. And in some not too distance tomorrow, the radiant stars of love and brotherhood will shine over our great nation with all our signaling beauty. The important word he used was nation. A nation is not just one community, it is all communities united together. 
He appealed to his readers by showing the circumstance he has been and was treated awful. While in jail, said he took the time to write a lengthy letter, not many people would, but he took the time to share the unjust and how it could be fixed. And all he wanted was to be treated the same as a white man. With this letter, he led us closer and closer to freedom. Dr. King's letter is still a reflection on what is happening today. His letter was about being treated equal no matter race. Background of financial status. Right now in this world, that's all my community and all want is equality. An example is the loss of George Floyd this summer. He was wrongfully profiled and killed just because of his color of his skin. If that was a white man, that would have never happened. That limit me as a young black man to go places with fear that I can get arrested or killed because of the color of my skin. Can I go to the store? Can I wear a hood? Can I walk down the street? No, I probably cannot do this without being seen as a threat, which I am not. Society tried to paint African-Americans out to be dangerous, but we are human, just like everyone else. The letter from Birmingham shows how the nation was worse than today, and we have come so far. This gives me faith that we'll get through these rough times and will one day be seen as fully equal. In conclusion, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. has made a huge impact on this country. With this word he left behind, we will continue to improve and seek the justice we deserve. So many people have died trying to help build a better future of us. Dr. King's legacy will continue. Thank you very much, Lucius. And now, Dr. Davis. That was incredible, Lucius. Thank you so much for joining us. We're really very honored. All right, thank you. Uh, Dr. Davis, now um, Chicago Youth Authors, Escaping the Odds. Okay, everyone. I just wanted to introduce our few more presentations. The next group up is Chicago Young Authors. The name of their video is Escaping the Odds. With the authors are Jonathan Jackson. He's a Escaping the Odds Chicago Young Author. Elise Ray. She's a junior at Malcolm X College, and she's also a young author. And Dazley Watson. She's a student at Chicago Military Academy in Bronzeville, and she's also a Chicago Young Author. Take a listen to the voice of youth in the community. Also, after that, we will have Antoine Harris talking and representing the voice of reentry youth in a live conversation. But right now, up next, Chicago, vote for Chicago. Chicago youth authors escaping the odds. Jonathan, Elise, and Dazley. Yo, check it. Jonathan Jackson, age 24, in the heart of Chicago, Inglewood, Southside, born and raised through our pop tide. I've witnessed leaders leave us bone dry like the winter waters vanish in the summer desert of the African safari. Like a motherless child left at the doorstep of a stranger's door, bleeding crimson red from the inside out. Now check this. I'm glad I had a pastor, a true leader who believed in bringing forth outcomes and healing our wounded communities. Reverend Dr. Kendall Jackson Sr. gave me the faith that we can understand how to make choices for ourselves. Two healing rituals, check these. Peace circles are a restorative justice technique that has been used for centuries. They can be traced back to the African diaspora. Peace circles help both sides to find a common ground while allowing all parties to provide their perspectives without interruption by using a talking piece that allows the person holding it the ability to speak and the ones who are not the ability to listen mitigating disrespect while maintaining a guideline structure to the healing process for the community. Now, on the other hand, we have de-escalation, which is a training technique that is used to help de-escalate violent situations by managing emotional flooding and bringing positive outcomes to potentially dangerous situations. Oh, what's flooding, you may ask? 
Flooding is when adrenaline floods the brain and chemically disrupts circuitry. De-escalation helps you to identify your behavioral, physical, and internal signs of flooding in order to de-escalate yourself before becoming violent. So when I think about these senseless killings and brokenness in my city, Hippocrates' quote comes to mind. Before you heal someone, ask him if he's willing to give up the things that make him sick. Hi, my name is Elise. I am from the south side of Chicago, Illinois. I am currently a prospective student for nutrition dietetics major. And Dr. King letters from Birmingham jail. He said, freedom is never voluntarily given by the oppressor. It must be demanded by the oppressed. For years now, I have heard the words wait. This wait has almost always meant never. I agree with Dr. King that politicians voice their plan of action for the black communities of Chicago, but have yet to come up with a plausible solution. And let's not forget those who try to speak for us and voice their opinions on communities they have never lived in. All of these voices, but the voices of the streets are unheard. Dassey Watson, I am 17 years old. I grew up on the south side of Chicago. My story is called Another Band is Shy, a dedication to Michael Sutton and Damian Howard, who died from gun violence. My mind was racing, and I couldn't stop thinking. My friend said, the situation here is not as big as George Floyd because a white police officer didn't do the murder. Instead, we did it to ourselves. It's acceptable when a black person kills another black person. Growing up, I noticed that if a black person kills another black person, it's not really a big deal, just another loss. But when a white police kills a black person, there are riots and the news is all over social media. Yet, black on black crimes are put into dark. As soon as Lila heard the news about the murder, she almost dropped the TV remote from quickly turning it off. She jumped up from her seat in a hurry and said, let's go to the store. I could tell she was trying to get my mind off the situation. Lila remembers, I remember too. I'll never forget. I'll always remember my cousins who were killed from black on black gun violence, killed on the streets of Chicago. She knows this is personal for me. Dr. Tasha, if you could say a word about the next student, because the audio, you were speaking on the telephone and it was a little bit difficult to understand. And he's obviously a really important student to you. So say a word about him before we cue up the audio and do the best we can to understand. So the next audio is a live conversation between myself and Save One Life Foundation scholar from 2017 named Antoine Harris. He was uh, one of the first to actually be incarcerated and go straight to college from jail and actually change his life through an opportunity in education. So he is now that leader we talked about, a young leader who can help those like who are still incarcerated as well as those that are living in the community. And so I wanted to share his voice to let you all hear what he saw as a young person being incarcerated for five years of his young life from 12 to 19 and let you all know what how he was able to make a change so we can make a change. So school changed his life, as you can see. And um, I think opportunities can change a lot of people's lives if we can either take your knee off our neck and let us do it on our own or assist for those that can't do it on their own. Thank you, Dr. Tasha. Keith, you've got an introduction. Yes, uh, it is my pleasure to present Samuel Lawson with a presentation titled A Letter from a Birmingham Jail. Samuel is being sponsored by the 100 Black Men of Tallahassee. Samuel. 
And actually in, in Sam's place today, because he had a test he had to take and we wanted to support him in that, is Dr. Ray Mobley of 100 Black Men of Tallahassee. Dr. Mobley, take it away. Thank you, Liz. And might I just say great job to the panel and to you for, for putting this program on. It's, it's been a pleasure working with you, sir. Thank you, ma'am. A letter from a Birmingham jail by Samuel Lawson. On April 16, 1963, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in a Birmingham, Alabama jail wrote a letter to eight white clergymen who had called his activities unwise and untimely because Dr. King believed these men were sincere and of genuine goodwill. Their criticisms were felt to be worthy of a response. Dr. King had been jailed for protesting segregation and racial injustice in Birmingham. In this letter, he was calling on his fellow clergymen to support his efforts in the pursuit of equal justice and basic civil rights. Currently, I look at the recent activities in America, specifically after the, the call for police reform by the Black Lives Matter movement. And in light of the many protests that occurred following the murder of George Floyd, there seemed to be some flashback from the past. I noted that those who march were often called thugs. And although they were actually exercising their rights as citizens to peacefully protest, they were often criminalized. This also happened to Dr. King and those who marched in the Birmingham campaign. In both situations, those who were wrong were criticized because they moved to nonviolent action against racial injustice. Both the Birmingham demonstrators and Black Lives Matter groups presented their bodies as sacrifices for the cause, knowing they could be and probably would be beaten or jailed. Although many years have passed, there has been little change. Then and now, demonstrations protesting racial injustice are deplored. Like Dr. King, I too am sorry that these criticisms fail to express a similar concern for the conditions that brought about the protests. There seems to be a continued preference for dealing with effects rather than grapple with underlying causes. Like Black Lives Matter demonstrators were treated very different from those who rioted at the Capitol to support the current president. Although the latter group was violent and destructive, they were allowed to leave unharmed. I choose to work to help everyone live in a world of equality. I am only 14, but I can see the need for justice for all, and I will work to make it so. I will strive to assure that black boys that come after me can live in one world, one that is equal. I will not work just for black boys like myself, but for all because of Dr. King. Because as Dr. King said, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Samuel Lawson. Thank you, Dr. Mobley. And I wanted to stress that both Samuel's essay 
and to Darius's essay were actually excerpts from the essay. So you can go online to the links that we're giving you to uh, read the full essays, which are very impactful. And obviously our students worked really hard to bring you their feelings on this letter on this very momentous and important day. Uh, Betsy, you're gonna join us for a few closing remarks. Hi, yes, I'm back. Well, I just wanted to encourage all of uh, you that are God Squad regulars, and maybe those of you that have tuned in for the first time to read those essays, print them off, mail them to friends, share them with your children, if you want to hear a, a, a fresh, deep, moving word, you have, and you've heard it from several different voices. You've heard it through the videos that Dr. Davis has shared with us. I guess I'm just really asking, let this change you. It's, it's changed me, and I'm looking forward, in some cases, with trepidation, because not everybody that I know that needs to read these will want to read these but I'm going to do my part and I hope that you will too. Thank you for being with us, all of you. Thank you. Thank you as always, Betsy. And Dr. Davis, it really has been a joy to get to know you and to work with you on this project. And I'll be thinking of you and your students. You're in my heart. Uh, and the students who are still on, just thank you so much. And Dr. Parker, sir, Tell us about, this is like the beginning of, of something. You're a guy who has a lot of really incredible ideas. And sh share with our audience what it's the beginning of. First, allow me to say thank you, Liz. Thank Village Square for the leadership and for the uh, inspiration to do. You did a fantastic job of bringing a collection of wonderful individuals together. And I'm sure you're going to mention them uh, individually in a few minutes. But I, I just want to say that uh, I have thoroughly enjoyed uh, the collaboration. I'm looking forward to future efforts and our activities. And to, to Darius, uh, while you were talking, one of the notes that came to me that really made a difference was someone suggested that we focus attention on another letter that was written by a person while incarcerated. And that is, of course, Patricia Stevens Dew. Uh, Patricia was uh, arrested in the Leon County Jail. And I think it's important for us, and I'm going to challenge uh, my 100 Black uh, men brother, uh, who's been on with us, uh, Dr. Ray Mobley, to work with the Black History Alliance. And we sponsor another competition. So uh, Liz, you have done a fantastic job with the first leg of the relay. And as such, you're passing the baton on to us. We shall not drop it. We're going to take it. We're going to run. Uh, the race continues. And we just want you to know you have been, a, been an inspiration to us. And we look forward to uh, future collaborations. And lastly, Dr. Davis, Someone said that you, with the beautiful glasses you have on, remind them of Patricia Stevens do. And uh, to those of us who are local, Patricia is, is very enduring. So do receive that as a compliment of the highest order, Liz. So I actually was just dropping in the chat um, a link to a program that we honored um, Patricia Stevens do 
and the other foot soldiers of our local civil rights movement. And you can actually watch the whole program, uh, which I would heartily recommend. And it, it is true, Dr. Davis, that Patricia Stevens do is really civil rights royalty, both both locally and nationally. She is just like incredible. So yes, Dr. Dr. Parker was correct in sharing that as being a compliment of the highest order. So I um, wanted to also say, uh, Dr. Davis worked with us, Dr. Parker, Dr. Mobley, and then I'm just going to read uh, the organization's hat tip to John and to Priscilla, and I'm going to read the organizations that really have been meeting for months and months and months to create this program. And it looks like I I left out the FAMU, Keith, if you can attribute uh, the FAMU, correct FAMU department, because it looks like that didn't get added to my list. It is the FAMU Cooperative Extension uh, Program. Thank you, sir. And Save One Life Foundation, Black History Month Festival and Black History Alliance, 100 Black Men of Tallahassee, Legacy Takes Taste of the Garden, and then our Funders Knight Foundation and Community Foundation of North Florida. I want to just give my most sincere thanks to all of you for joining us here today. And we hope you'll you'll go to our website and not just uh, listen to these presentations and absorb them and think about the students who shared them with us, but also join us again for another program sometime soon. Thank you so much. Hi again, it's Vanessa here, your podcast host. I hope you enjoyed this God Squad program reflecting on Dr. King's letter from Birmingham Jail. I learned something from each presenter, and I'm so thankful to all of them for sharing their words with us. I promised I'd announce the contest winners, so here we go. First place goes to Kayla Stevenson and Caleb Johnson for their video entry, Women Are King. That was one of the ones played in the beginning of the episode. Second place goes to Jonathan Jackson, Elise Ray, and Dazzle Watson for their video entry called Chicago Young Authors Escaping the Odds. That was one of the ones played toward the end of the program. And third place goes to one of today's panelists. You guys know who that is. To Darius J. Smith for his essay titled My Interpretation of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s Letter from Birmingham Jail. Congratulations to all of these winners and to all who submitted entries in the contest. Your words will help many people grow in their understanding of our continued racial struggles in this country. And I am one of those people who is learning from you all. This was one of those programs where I flagged about a zillion incredible quotes, which shows just how much I needed this personally. And I needed Betsy's challenge at the end, too. I will share these essays, starting with my own children. One of the things I added to my kids' school day during this year when they're home virtually is that they have to read a newspaper article or occasionally something like this that I'll sub in. So I just printed all of these out for my kids to read. As I was doing that, I had another one of those moments where some dots got connected. Over these past months, really almost a year now, I've been going through what I consider an enhanced learning phase about our racial issues. And I know lots of other whites have been doing the same. When it comes to my kids, I've talked to them all their lives about racial issues because I believe this is one of the most important issues of our generation. But all of a sudden, it occurred to me how much my own understanding and perspective has shifted as I've recently listened directly 
to many African Americans share their lived experience. And so all of a sudden, I realized how much my kids really need to hear directly from these people too. I mean, of course, I have a major role to play here still in the dialogue and in exposing them to content. But just as I have been changed by hearing these words directly from the source, my kids can and should feel that too. I personally cannot adequately relay to them how it feels to be black. So thank you, truly, from the bottom of my heart, to all of these brave presenters and leaders. Before we end today, just a quick announcement about Village Square's new season of programming called A Citizen's Guide to Healing America, named before we even knew how much we need it right now. This season will address the fault lines in our democratic system and empower individual citizens, just like you and me, to understand and address the challenges ahead. The first two programs are called The Reunited States and then A Divided Union, Structural Challenges to Bipartisanship. To find out how you can tune into these virtual programs, visit us at tlh.villagesquare.us. And while you're there, sign up for our newsletter so you can stay up to date with all that's to come. And of course, you can also listen to our programs right here on Village Squarecast. Subscribe in your favorite podcast app or on our website at tlh.villagesquare.us slash squarecast. That's also where you can find the show notes for this episode with links to the videos and essays. Just go to tlh.villagesquare.us slash squarecast and look for episode 25. We'd be so grateful if you'd give us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We appreciate you listening to Letter from Birmingham Jail. Until next time, we challenge you to reach out with an open heart and mind to someone who doesn't look or think like you. It changes everything. We'll talk to you soon, and thank you so much for listening to Village Squarecast. Cast.